Thank you for downloading the Two Cities Church podcast, where we are pushing back darkness by spreading the good news of King Jesus. And now, here is this week's message from Pastor Jeff Struker. Before you sit down, somebody say, great are you, Lord. Now you can sit down. Thank you. We are going to study the greatest tragedy in human history. There isn't even a close second today. But you're also going to hear, at the exact same time, the greatest love story ever told. And both of these things converge at the cross of Christ. Normally, I do like an introduction before we get into the passage of Scripture. I don't want to take anything away from what the Bible says. So what I want to do is just roll up our sleeves, and I want us to get into John chapter 19 in just a second. And like I said, greatest tragedy in all of human history is recorded for us at this point in the Bible, John chapter 19. But I think it's also the greatest love story ever told. And there's really no way that you can measure how much you mean to Jesus, except for to look right here at the cross of Jesus Christ. See, the truth is, y'all, there's a bunch of crap. I don't know a better word for it. There's just a bunch of crap in our society today that people try to pass off as love. Watch the movies, read the novels, listen to music and what they're telling you and defining as love. That's not really love. Love is measured by sacrifice. That's what tells you how much you really mean to somebody and the greatest sacrifice that anybody can give. Jesus uses this word, greater love has no man than this, that they do what? They lay down their life for somebody else. You're going to hear the greatest sacrifice ever made of all times. It is the greatest tragedy recorded in human history and at the exact same time, the greatest love story ever told. And it's found in the Bible in John chapter 19. Before we start opening the Bible, I reminded you last week, if you were with us, be careful because People get to this point of the Bible, and you've heard the story so many times. If you grew up in church, you have heard this story hundreds or thousands of times. And hearing it so much can make it lose some of its significance. So I need you to listen today like you're hearing it for the first time. I need you to imagine that you're standing there and watching this unfold in front of your eyes. But more than anything else, I need you to see your role in what we read today. John chapter 19 is going to describe for us the love of Jesus. And love, by its very nature, has to serve. A love that doesn't serve or let me add it, or let me say it this way, a love that is transactional, that junk is not love. Here's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the music lyrics you listen to that says, when you do this for me, I love you. When you give this to me, I'll love you. If you do something for me, I will love you in return. Here's what's worse, because most of the people at some point have felt this way. I love you because of the way that you make me feel on the inside. And I just need you to know, that's not really love. Because love gives without ever asking for anything in return. And if there has to be something in return, whatever you call that, you don't use the word love to describe it. 
Here's how Jesus serves. And I want you to notice, to his dying breath, he's still serving people. John chapter 19, we're going to start reading in verse 25. And there are a few people that are walking with Jesus all the way up to the point that they've nailed him to a cross. And now is the last moments of his life. And here's what the Bible says, starting in verse 25, John chapter 19. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And oh, by the way, where are the rest of the disciples? They bolted because this is dangerous. There's maybe one other disciple. We're not exactly sure how many people are there, but at least four women and one disciple. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple he loved standing there, and by the way, the, John wants you to know, that's me. I'm the disciple that Jesus loves. I was standing there next to Mary, his mother. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple Jesus loved standing there, he said to his mother, woman, here is your son. And then he said to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. And basically what the Bible is telling us is that the disciple took care of Jesus. In Jesus's day, at this point, Mary is already a widow. Joseph has died. And in Jesus's day, now it's the oldest son's responsibility to provide for his mother. He's hanging on the cross. He should be thinking about himself right now, but instead he's still serving. He's thinking about his mother, and he's doing what a good Jewish boy is supposed to do. He's going to take care of his mother. Now, way back in John chapter 2, when Jesus performed his first miracle, he used this language, woman, what is that to me? And if you're not careful, that's going to sound a little bit harsh, like Jesus is being hard-hearted and doesn't care about his mama. Obviously, this word woman in John is a term of great affection because he looks at Mary and he takes care of her right there on the spot and says, Mary, I want you to look at John. John, I want you to look at Mary. John, I need you to take care of my mother because this is it for me. There's no farther that I can go. Do you know that half of the world recognizes Mary and the sacrifice that she made so that you could be made right with God? And I think rightly so, half of the world recognizes Mary. This moment for Mary has to ring back to Jesus' first days. Because after Mary had this baby, while she was still a virgin, when she brought him to the temple, and when she dedicated Jesus to be uh, dedicated to the Lord, there was a prophet that was there, a really old man, who told Mary what was about to happen. This child will be the rise and fall of everybody. But by the way, Mary, there's a moment coming where it is going to pierce your soul what happens to your son. And I'm convinced Mary is standing there at the cross and she is remembering the words that Simeon said to her when she dedicated Jesus at the temple. And this hurts bad. But if you're not careful, what some people around the world do is focus more on Jesus' mother than on God our Father. Because I need you to think about what the Father of God is, God our Father is going through at this moment. 
while he's watching his only begotten son hanging on the cross and the intense suffering, the excruciating, you know that word excruciating means from the cross, this excruciating pain that Jesus is going through. And even while he's still on the cross, he is thinking about others and he's serving. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they record what's happening on the cross. They record some statements that John doesn't use today. John records this statement that the others don't talk about. And John wants you to know Jesus was serving people all the way up until his last breath on the cross. That's what he was doing for you. This is the moment where all of religion can be separated into two categories. There is every other religion for all of human history has the exact same approach of you serving some deity, you serving some little g God, and you're supposed to work hard, you're supposed to go to their altar, you're supposed to serve that God, and if you will serve that God, then that God will do something good for you. That's how all religion for all times has worked. Christianity is radically different because what John 19 is describing is a God that serves you. Oh, listen, y'all, don't get me wrong. I need you to lean in for just a second here. King Jesus demands your soul. He demands your absolute authority or absolute allegiance. He demands your total surrender. But before he demands that of you, he gives you everything. He says, I demand that you give me everything in return, but I serve first. He is the serving, the sacrificing, the self-giving God. And then he expects you as a return to serve him in reply. I hope this is hitting you right between the eyes right now because listen, what people do is they go to church and think, God, I just did something good for you, so now I need you to do something good for me. They pray or they give some money or they read their Bible and say, God, I'm working hard for you. I need you to do something good for me. And they're acting, they're turning Christianity into every other cult religion in history. No, for Christianity, this is the defining moment. And it always works opposite. He serves. He sacrifices. He gives himself. And then because he's done all of that, he says, now I want you to worship me. Now I want you to follow me. Now I want you to give yourself to me. And I'll prove that you can trust me with it. I have given myself to you first. Love, by its definition, gives, not takes. And when there's a transaction here, whatever you call those fluttering emotions in the stomach, uh, you don't call it love. I also need you to know that love gives until it hurts. The word sacrifice really has to hurt a little bit, at least a little bit. And if it doesn't hurt a little bit, it's not a sacrifice. So come on, y'all. How many of you out there have had somebody say to you, um, I will love you if you will do this for me, or because you did this for me, I love you? How many of you have heard that language before? That kind of taking instead of giving love, that love is not really sacrificial. And a love that doesn't cost you anything, it really isn't love. 
A love that only takes and doesn't give. And when it gives, it gives what's easy, it gives what's cheap, but it doesn't really give sacrificially. That's not love. That's why Jesus can use that language. Greater love you have never seen than this, that somebody sacrifices. And the ultimate of sacrifice would be that they give themselves. They give up their life. That's ultimate love. That's the ultimate sacrifice. And that's what the Bible describes for us at this moment. Before we even get into what the Bible says next, I just need to say to you, no medical doctor can describe for you what we read next. In fact, no pastor, no priest, no doctor of theology, trust me, I've studied this, can tell you exactly what happens next. Because when Jesus gives, he ultimately gives his life. I want to remind you, when Jesus was talking to his disciples, he warned them, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, they're going to arrest me, and they're going to kill me, but I need you to know this. And he says this ahead of time to his disciples, nobody can take my life from me. I am God in the flesh, and the Romans can't do that, the Jews can't do that, the crowd can't do that. No one can take my life from me. Jesus says, no, I give my life, his own words, and I give my life as a ransom for many, the price to set a prisoner free. And here is the fulfillment of Jesus' words. Here is the fulfillment of massive prophecy in the Bible. Here is the fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 12. Here is the fulfillment of Numbers chapter 9. Here's the fulfillment of Ezekiel or Exodus chapter 12. Psalm 24, Psalm 69, and even up to Genesis chapter, or all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. It is all fulfilled at this moment in history, starting in verse 28. After this, when Jesus took care of his mama, after this, when Jesus knew that everything was now finished and that the scriptures might be fulfilled, he said, I'm thirsty. I need you to let that sink in, that the one who is the living water is thirsty on the cross. And so a jar full of sour wine was sitting there. And they fixed a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch, and they held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is, say this next word out loud, it is is finished. That's an incredibly important word. I'll tell you why in just a second. And then bowing his head, look at what the Bible says next. He gave up his spirit. While he's still on the cross, and in fact, while the other two guys on his left and his right are still alive, this is the moment where Jesus bows his head in submission to the Father. This is the moment where Jesus gives Something that no one can take from him. He gives up the thing that makes Jesus, Jesus. The thing that makes you, you is your spirit. It's, it's not his heart. It's not his lungs. It's not a loss of blood. This is what cost Jesus his life. He gave it up for you. And when the Bible uses this language, it is finished That's a technical term. It's actually a banking term. It's the term that you would use to say paid in full or completely accomplished, 
totally, perfectly atoned for. I was reading the Bible years ago, and when I got to this passage, it dawned on me for the first time. Now, I had been in the Bible for years by the time that I read John chapter 19, and then all of a sudden, something occurred to me. Everything about the Old Testament sacrificial system just got accomplished at this moment on the cross. I know most of you are saying, Jeff, you're a little bit slow on the uptake because I figured that one out the first time that I read this. But no, stay with me for just a second. The very first sacrifice recorded for us in the Bible, this is not supposed to be a trick question, but I just want to test your Bible knowledge here. Who was the very first to, to sacrifice in the Bible? God did. God sacrificed an animal, took the skins of that animal, and provided the skins to Adam and Eve to cover up their shame and their nakedness because they've just sinned. God placed this sacrificial system in place way back in Genesis because Abel and Cain knew they were supposed to sacrifice for God. Abraham practiced the sacrifice in the Old Testament. Moses perfected the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. The entire Old Testament is basically a record of sacrificing for Jesus or sacrificing for your sins. And I always thought to myself, well, all of those things, Jesus dying on the cross is pointing back to all of those Old Testament sacrifices. And then this is the moment it occurred to me. I got this all wrong. In fact, those Christians, and I'm using this word specifically, those Christians recorded for us in the Old Testament, they were actually looking forward, not backwards. It's not Jesus fulfilling all of those Old Testament prophecies and Jesus becoming the final sacrifice. That's true, but this word finished actually is pointing from the cross back to Genesis. And what the Bible is telling us is all of those people, when they were sacrificing for all of human history up to this point, in their minds, they were saying, one of these days, God's going to give his lamb as a sacrifice. And my lamb doesn't matter that much after God gives his lamb. And the whole sacrificial system, do you know the reason why we don't kill an animal in church today? Because we don't need to. It has been accomplished, it has been fulfilled, it has been finished, it has been paid in full, and it was all accomplished for us at the cross, which means you share the same faith that Abraham did, we just are on the opposite side of the cross. You share the same faith as Cain and Abel, well, one of the two. You share the same faith as Moses and all of those great saints of the Old Testament. You're just on the opposite side of it. You see, all of those moments in the Old Testament were actually pointing forward. The cross doesn't really point backwards. This is what God promised he would have to do to fix our sin way back in Genesis chapter 3 when he started to pronounce judgment on the serpent, pronounce judgment on Adam, pronounce judgment on Eve, and eventually say, hey, at the, at the end of the day, I'm going to have to make a sacrifice. And Satan, you're going to strike at his heel, but he's going to crush your head. And the cross is the moment where Satan strikes at Jesus' heel. And this, Christ, or this cross undoes sin, and it undoes death, 
and it takes all of the power away from the grave. This is the moment where Jesus crushes forever all of the things that you and I cannot rescue ourselves from. I love biographies. I really think that biographies, the power of biographies is that you read these stories of ordinary people going through extraordinary circumstances. And what makes them so powerful is that while they're going through it, while you're watching this biopic in the movies or reading this biography, it occurs to you, wait a second, this is a real person. And they really did that. And that is where it becomes really powerful. Just this week, I finished a biography about a British spy during World War II, a true life woman by the name of Betty Pack. The title of this biography is The Last Good Night. And Betty Pack was an American woman in the 1930s who married a British diplomat. She lived on the uh, in British embassies around the world. And when 1938-39 started to happen, the uh, British intelligence service realized this woman has incredible skills. Maybe we could use her diplomatic cover and turn her into a spy. MI6 recruited her, and she started to become a spy codenamed Cynthia. She was so overwhelmingly successful that even when the U.S. got into the war, even when the U.S. began their counterintelligence operations, the OSS recruited Cynthia as well. And at the end of the war, both countries, Britain and the U.S.'s intelligence services said, this woman, Betty Pack, is the greatest unsung heroine of the war because of what she did for the allied causes during World War II. The kind of sacrifices that she made in that book will make you think this can't really be true. But the book reminds you, this was a real woman. She really did these things and it really is true. And what the Bible is describing for us today is the God who sacrifices for you. The God who serves you first and gives first. And then in return says, and then I expect you to give every breath that's in your lungs back to me. Because by the way, that breath that's in your lungs, I gave it to you. And I want you to give it back to me now. But I need you to remember, I gave first and I gave most and I made the greatest sacrifice. So anything and everything that you give me now, it doesn't hold a candle to what I've done for you. Now we're ready for the final words that Jesus speaks to us from the cross. Because if you were to ask a medical doctor, what is the real cause of death here? You can talk about his heart no longer beating. You can talk about no brain activity. You could talk about no air in the lungs, no blood circulating through the veins, all of the body and blood stuff that we talk about in communion in just a few moments. When we go to God's table in the back of this room, you could talk about all of those things, but the truth is he could hang on that cross for days, for years, for eternity if he wanted to, because he is both God and man. And what none of us can properly understand 
is the moment where he says, because I am the author of life, because I have all authority, because I decide when I live and I decide when I die, he willingly, freely gives his life up. And he does it because he loves you. And nothing else can properly demonstrate how much you mean to Jesus. But those five words that are on the screen right there, he gave up his spirit. And you really need to write in the margins of your Bible for me. That's why he did that. You see, love sticks around to the end. I feel pretty certain that you've heard somebody say these words, I fell out of love with them. And if you've ever examined that statement at face value, if you can fall in love like you tripped and you banged your nose, if you could fall out of love like that, then is that really love? Because something that doesn't stick around to the end, something that bails when it starts to get hard or decides, you know what, I just don't care anymore. I don't know what you call that, but I don't think you call this love. Do you see the problem with this English word love that we use? It gets used so often and it means so many things that at this point in our society, it means absolutely nothing. A love that doesn't serve, that takes but it doesn't give. A love that doesn't give into the point that it hurts and sacrifices. A love that doesn't stick around all the way to the end. The kind of language we use in a wedding ceremony, till death do us part. Anything less than that, by definition, just really isn't love. And here's how the story ends. Jesus' great love for you John chapter 19, starting in verse 35, 31. Since it was the preparation day, the Jews didn't want the bodies to remain on the cross on the Sabbath. For the, that Sabbath was a special day. Okay, if you're paying attention to the Bible, we got a problem right now with the word Sabbath. I'm going to come back to this in just a second and tell you why this is a problem. They requested that Pilate have the men's legs broken so that their bodies may be taken away. And the reason why they needed to break their legs is because there was no way they could use their leg muscles to push themselves up to get a grasp of air. When you break their legs, now they're going to suffocate on the cross. And it's going to happen really, really quickly. So they, the Jewish priests and the pastors go to Pilate and say, hey, we need you to break their leg. We just need you to kill them. Break their legs so that they'll die before the sun goes down. Because when the sun goes down, now we're into Sabbath. Now we're into Passover. So the Roman death squad, so the soldiers came and they broke the legs of the first man and of the other one who had been crucified with Jesus. Remember, one on his right, one on his left. They're still alive, but Jesus is not. Because when they came to Jesus, they didn't break his legs since they saw that he was already dead. But they don't want to get this wrong. So one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once blood and water came out. Many people think this is a reference to the water and blood that's going to be spilled on Passover when the sun goes down. 
And listen to what the Bible says next. Pay very close attention, church. Lean in for a second because the guy who's writing this wants you to know Jesus didn't just pass out from lack of blood. He didn't go into shock. He didn't go into some kind of coma. This wasn't a mistake. Those Roman soldiers are professionals. They know dead when they see it. And by the way, the proof that he's dead is poke him in the side and the water and the blood rolls out. But John says, I don't want there to be any confusion about whether or not that man was really dead or just passed out a little bit. And this is why. He who saw this, John, the one that was at the cross, he who saw this has testified so that you may believe. His testimony is true. And he knows he's telling the truth. For these things happen so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones was broken. Also another scripture that says, they will look at the one they pierced. John is saying to you, I was there. I'm an eyewitness and nobody can argue that that man really didn't die. Why is this a big deal? Because when John is writing this years later, Everyone in John's community knows, wait a second, we saw him again and he was walking through the city streets. How can he still be walking through the city streets if he really died on the cross? And then many people say, well, you know what? He didn't really die. He just passed out. John is saying, no, no, no. I was there. I watched it with my own eyes and I'm writing it for you for a very specific reason so that you would know this really happened. But more than anything else, so that you would believe he did that for you. Now, the problem with this passage of Scripture many people wrestle with is when exactly is Passover? Because if you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all of this happens middle of the afternoon before the sun goes down. And many people are, uh, are thinking, well, this must have been Passover if Jesus is the Passover lamb. I got a question for you. How many of you in this room open gifts on December 24th? In your family, do you, you, could, you can raise your hands proud, like, yeah, we do that in my house. Okay, what do you call December 24th? You call it Christmas? Well, Christmas is actually December 25th, right? But do you use the word Christmas for December 24th or Christmas Eve? Yeah, so in Jesus' day, Passover is a week-long celebration. The actual Passover day itself begins at sundown this day, and then it goes until sundown the next day. Jesus is arrested the night before this. He is brought on trial to Pilate. Pilate condemns him. He carries his cross through the streets. He hangs on the cross three, four, five hours, maybe max, and now it's starting to get dark, and the Jewish leaders say, uh, we can't leave bodies up on the cross during Passover. That's a great religious error in our day. And we also can't ask somebody to touch the bodies on Passover because that makes them unclean and no longer able to take the Passover meal. We need to kill them before the sun goes down. So the Roman soldiers show up and they use this iron club and they break both legs of the guys on Jesus's right and on his left. Now it's going to be minutes before these guys will suffocate and be dead. When they get to Jesus in the middle though, they're like, wait a second. I think that brother's already dead. Like, I've seen enough. 
We've crucified enough people. I know what dead on the cross looks like. That guy is pretty much dead. But just to prove it so that we don't get back to Pilate and make a mistake, let's go ahead and poke him in the side with a spear and blood and water rush out, which means his heart is probably, the sack around his heart is probably filled with water. I'm giving you all of these medical explanations, but the truth is, John says, it's not because of the heart. It's not because of the lungs. It's not because of loss of blood. It's because while he was hanging there, he made the conscious decision, that's it. And I'm giving my life right now. Please keep this in mind. The one who gives abundant life, the one who has authority to give you eternal life, chooses to give his life up on the cross for you. That's what we're reading right now about a love that sacrifices. And it serves, and it serves you even when you and I are at our worst, and it never stops serving until his last breath he's serving you. And when he says it is finished, he means you can't add anything else to this. To even try to add something else to this is kind of an offense. A couple of weeks ago in my international life group, one of the guys from my group, his name is Johan Meyer um, from South Africa. Johan said, hey guys, can I tell you what just happened to me recently? And it really impacted me. And then Johan told a story that has stuck with me. Actually, I can't get it out of my head. He said there was a rat that got caught in a trap, and the trap didn't kill the rat all the way, so I had to take the rat out of the trap, I had to take the rat outside, and I had to finish the job, which is what any good you know, leader, any good father, any good husband is going to do. And then he said, I'm outside, and I've just finished the job, and I'm looking down at the rat, and then all of a sudden it hit him, this rat, and why it was so easy for him to kill the rat. Are you guys still with me? Say yes. Okay. Because Johan had two daughters, and one of his daughters had a pet, a pet hamster. No, listen, it gets better. And that daughter loved the hamster. Johan didn't really care about the hamster. Doesn't mean anything to him but I love my daughter. My daughter loves the hamster. And so they treated the hamster like an honored, uh, you know, uh, an honored uh, animal in the house. Actually, when the hamster got sick, listen to this, they spent money and went out of their way to try to treat the sick hamster. And then he said, wait a second, what's the difference between the rat laying in my driveway and the hamster? Because that animal is very, very similar. And then it dawned on him. The only difference is the love of my child for that pet. And if he would have just left it there, frankly, I would have just forgot all about the story. And then he did this to me, and I cannot get this story out of my head now. What's the difference between me and somebody who will spend an eternity separated from Christ in hell because they've turned around and they've walked away. Basically, what Johann, when he was telling this story, here's what I started hearing from the Holy Spirit. Jeff, you're the rat, and you deserve the poison, and you deserve to die. The wages of sin is death. You deserve what happened to that rat. 
But God the Father, instead of treating you like the rat, decides to treat you like this treasured family pest. Pet. Did I say pest? Because I meant pet. Treat you like this treasured family pet and treat you like this hamster because of Jesus' love for you. You didn't do anything to deserve to be treated like the hamster. You deserve to be treated like the rat. But the reason he's going to treat you like the hamster instead of the rat is not you. It's because of this event on the cross 2,000 years ago. And if you want to know how much you mean to the Father, you just have to look at the cross. That's the only thing that can tell you how much you mean to him. And I cannot get the rat out of my mind because when he's telling me the story, I'm thinking I am the rat. But God treated me and continues to treat me like the hamster because his son loves me and was willing to sacrifice and to serve and to stick with it all the way till his last breath. That's how much he means to me. I hope you can't get that rat imagery out of your head. You see, what Jesus really asks of his people is either I'm king in your life or I'm not. And if I'm king, I demand that you renounce everything, not just your sin. I demand that you renounce your life, your choices, your future, all of it, and surrender it to me. And I'm the king, and I call the shots. That's what I demand of you. But I need you to understand, I gave you far more than you will ever give me, and I gave first. So when you renounce yourself and run to Jesus and exchange his, your life in exchange for his death, he radically changes you and turns you from the rat into the hamster. But I need the rest of you. Listen, when life gets hard this week, I need you to run back to the cross. I need you to reflect on the cross. I need you to remind yourself of God's sacrificial love. There's nothing else that you can use to adequately measure love except sacrifice. And there is no greater love story because there's no greater sacrifice in all of human history than the sacrifice we read about today. We hope you enjoyed this message. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and to stay in touch by joining our email list through the link in the show notes. Have a great week.